Oh, thank you very much, Josh. And howdy, y'all. Uh, being a native Texan, I've, from earliest days, I've looked on Austin as cultural center of my little universe. So it's very pleasant to be back here and uh, to be talking with you about uh, U.S.-China relations as they move, in my opinion, into a new global era. Uh, and the three major points I'd like to emphasize are, first of all, that U.S.-China rivalry is almost inevitable, uh, but it's not like the U.S.-Soviet Union rivalry. So the first thing I'd focus on is the bilateral relationship. And this is where most discussion in the United States and in China stops. And I think that that's really unfortunate because the second thing I'll be emphasizing, I think, is at least as important as the bilateral interaction. And that is the global context of U.S.-China is totally different from the Cold War camps of the, of the previous uh, U.S.-Soviet relationship. We are now in a situation where countries are both, both more interdependent and they have more alternatives. And they're interdependent, uh, their, their degree of interdependence through trade, communications, et cetera, is very large, but it's not as, as, as specific as the old hub and spokes systems of Cold War, which means that you have uh, conflicting costs and, and uh, more alternatives for every country, large and small, in figuring out what their relationship should be. And this affects the strategies of alignments. Uh, so I think this leads to what I call a post-hegemonic era. That is an era in which there are major powers that have many, have much more, at, much more, many more resources to bring to bear in bilateral and multilateral relationships, but they're not in control of those relationships. They're not in a hegemonic situation. If other countries have alternatives, then it's harder for the U.S. or China to say, my way or the highway. They do have alternatives, and they even have alternatives to not just either or alternatives at the top, but alternatives of buffering their relationships with the major powers. Uh, and so this affects our fundamental strategic options. And the last point I'd, I would like to make is that the basic pattern of relationship should, it will probably be and should be a competition for influence rather than for control. And what the implications of a competition for influence might be is something that I think is worth thinking about. So that's the big idea. So we start with U.S.-China rivalry and its difference from the Soviet Union, uh, U.S.-Soviet rivalry. How many of you, I'm sorry, how many of y'all, <laughs> it's hard to get back to my native tongue, you know, uh, have been to China? Very good. How many of y'all during the Soviet period had been to the Soviet Union? Ooh, pretty good too. Uh, but still, if you've been to a place and very few Americans had visited Russia or Eastern Europe during the Cold War, because it wasn't easy to do, uh, now massive numbers of Chinese tourists are going outside of China, especially to Taiwan and Hong Kong, much to their distress, uh, and, uh, and coming to Europe and the United States and massive numbers of Americans and Europeans and, and Japanese and South Koreans are going to China 
there's that type of personal flow that that creates makes it much more difficult to simply rely on a conceptual notion of China US. So for many of us the, the, our our own personal conception of the place the other place is uh, is richer than that and more complex than that. Uh, and besides it's not just visiting. It's things like have you ever decided to that it was too much trouble to cook dinner and and gone out for Soviet takeout, you know, uh, the uh, cultural influences of all sorts uh, are a little bit strong. And, and those of you who have been to the who had been to the Soviet Union know even more that you wouldn't go out for Soviet takeout, right? I mean, there's only a limit to how much borscht you can eat. Uh, so uh, this this the the something just to tip our hats to before talking about strategic relationships is a difference in in the whole penumbra of the relationship now. Uh, But still, there certainly are grounds for rivalry that are not going to go away and that establish a sense of, of, of disquiet over relative change. The first of all, the obvious thing is, is the up and down China's relative rise vis-a-vis every country but also vis-a-vis the United States. Now, it's a relative rise. The United States is still the fastest, is still a, a solidly growing major developed country. And given the, stand, the, par, the, the uh, starting point each year, that means that the actual increment in the economy is much larger than China's. Uh, but uh, it's a, uh, the relative change is something that concerns us. And from Late last year to the next five or so years, you'll have greater uh, attention paid to China becoming the world's largest economy. In purchasing power parity terms, IMF declared it the world's largest economy uh, late last year. Uh, And eventually, depending on the vagaries of currency exchanges, uh, uh, sometime in the future, given a persisting relative uh, rate of growth, uh, China will be the world's largest aggregate economy. Uh, but China's rate of growth is diminishing. Clearly, it's diminishing this year. It's likely to continue to diminish. If it maintains 6 or 7%, it'll be happy. Uh, uh, and still, that will be a relative gain vis-a-vis the United States. Uh, so that whole idea of up and down is of seeing a country get a larger economy than ours is something that is worrisome and something from the Chinese standpoint, the idea of being that successful is something that can engage patriotism, satisfaction, and arrogance. Uh, Then you have the systems difference. Again, the systems difference between U.S. and China isn't as great as it might appear if you look at the details of economic uh, management, the role of market in China's economy, et cetera. These different, the differences, uh, except for political differences, the differences between Chinese socio-economy and the U.S. socio-economy are considerably less than the differences between the Soviet socio-economy and the American socio-economy in the Cold War. So, uh, but still, especially in politics, the differences are huge. Uh, 
personal liberties have expanded in China, but political liberties are the shining exception to that, and that's what we look at. Uh, so the idea of, of China being not just an acceptable system to the United States, uh, but being a system that could credibly adjust and adapt and be good for its people in a more diverse society, we find that also unlikely. So you, uh, you, David Shambo, friend of ours who uh, had an article in the Wall Street Journal recently, you know, basically uh, I think part of what underlies his pessimism about future of China is China's not becoming, is not acquiring what we consider the base level to a modern society, which is what we have and what our Western friends have. China's doing something different and he thinks it's a flawed system and it's bound to fail. I differ on that, but uh, it's certainly uh, a, an experimented progress in China and Vietnam. Uh, and that difference certainly establishes an us-them uh, political dichotomy that, that, uh, us, that creates rivalry. And then there's the difference in interest. And those differences in interest are differences in resources, you know, differences over resources. Uh, used to be people talked about energy. And then energy was discovered. Uh, and, uh, and the U.S. is in prospect of replacing Saudi Arabia as the world's largest producer. Well, things happen. Uh, but even without considering the competitive uh, resource relationship between the United States and China, you have located interests. China's interest in the North Korean problem is fundamentally different from our interest. Our interest is focused on nuclear weapons, North Korea. China would rather North Korea not have nuclear weapons too, but North Korea is on its doorstep, and North Korea has to be considered. The, the question of uh, collapse of the North Korean regime for China is a question of what will it be like afterwards on our doorstep, whereas a collapse of the North Korean regime for the United States is more, ha, huh, distant problem solved. You know, the way it should be. Uh, I don't know if China would feel that way about something in Guatemala. Uh, but uh, uh, it, at least something always to consider on, on interest is not simply the, the conscious conflict of interest, where both sides want the same thing, but also the location of interest. And China's location in Asia among its 14 land neighbors uh, is a very different uh, standpoint from which to look out at the world and, and to gauge national interests. Okay, well, what are the limits on bilateral rivalry? Because when we talk about rivalry, sometimes in international relations theory we talk about rivalry, it automatically goes to a military rivalry, you know, a, a persistent uh, condition under which military conflict can arise. I don't think that that's likely in the U.S.-China relationship. And I think that when we're talking about rivalry uh, between the two, it's much more likely to be competitive. Uh, or the cautious cooperation, cautious hedging is likely to be the combination which has persisted for the last 30 years and will continue into the future with different content. Part of the reason why I think it's limited is interdependence. And again, very different from U.S.-Soviet relationship, very little interdependence in that relationship economically or socially, much more in, uh, with China. 
and the complexities of that economic interdependence, given the fact that China's simply the site of final production for a large part of the imports that we bring in. And those imports are being assembled in foreign invested factories and assembled from foreign invested parts so that it's a very small part of the value of an iPhone that's actually made in China. Uh, so uh, if uh, that our interdependence with China is the tip of an iceberg of interdependence, that if we tried to clip off that tip, we would find out that that would cost Intel, that would cost investors, that would cost the people, the factories and companies that have outsourced their jobs to China. You know, there'd be all sorts of entanglements. It's not simply a question of a trade of finished products. And our statistics haven't adjusted for that, and uh, our thinking hasn't adjusted for that, that, the complexity of interdependence in a globalized uh, uh, world in which intermediate goods are, are become primary in the exchange. Uh, second problem with limits on bilateral, or second thing contributing to the limits is collateral damage. That it's typical for big countries in disputes to engage in sort of tit-for-tat behavior, eye-for-an-eye eye behavior. The problem is that when you have that level of interdependence, uh, you know, you aim for the eye and hit the arm, and then that arm hits your arm, you know, it, it's, it's hard to keep, it's hard to have a clean tit-for-tat uh, type of exchange uh, with no further damage no, to the relationship, etc. You think of U.S.-China uh, uh, potential of conflict over Taiwan. Uh, if there were a crisis in the in the in the uh, uh, the Taiwan Straits, it would be something. The first concern would be what to do in the crisis, but a concern that should be longer and deeper than that is. So what next? Because U.S. comes in, saves Taiwan. Great. We have reestablished our unsinkable aircraft carrier in East Asia, and that's all we have because you have a China that really resents that and is preparing to, to sink that aircraft carrier too. Uh, uh, or you say, well, you know, we always said in the Shanghai communique that Taiwan was a part of China, and lo and behold, now it is. And then what happens to U.S. credibility? Okay, so... The, the immediate question in relationships is not – the immediate exchange doesn't solve the problem. It creates further problems given the, the interrelationship of U.S. and China as the primary world powers uh, and as very enmeshed world powers in many respects. And then lastly, of course, how can we forget nuclear weapons? Uh, you're a real problem with imagining conflict between China and the United States is that uh, we could all kill ourselves. And that's very inconvenient. Uh, so uh, what, what role does, the, does this, to be hopeful, limit on uh, massive, uh, massive war. What, what are the implications of that down the strategic logic? Uh, you know, you don't want, 
If you don't want to have nuclear war, you don't want to be next to having nuclear war. You don't want to be next to next to having nuclear war. So what, are, what is the chain of consequences from that type of situation? We've been there before. This is an aspect that's very much like Cold War. This is what, this is, this is what the Cuban Missile Crisis faced us with in, uh, in the 1960s, that, that there was a real possibility of mutual destruction, a mutually assured destruction. So how do we avoid mutually assured destruction? By engaging in mutual risk reduction measures, uh, 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 the anti-ballistic missile treaty, various other types of things that produce the, the late flower of the Soyuz space missions. You know, you actually got that sort of high-level, high-tech, mutual, uh, mutual reassurance to avoid uh, a, law, a big lose-lose situation. Engage in mutual reinsurance, and you finally end up with a situation of high-tech cooperation in space. This is an amazing accomplishment. We haven't reached that level with China, strangely enough, even though obviously we were more hostile to the Soviet Union. Uh, but uh, I hope that that type of response over time, you know, I hope that, that we engage in that over time. So I don't think that the U.S.-China rivalry is an inevitable conflict. I don't think that it's necessarily something where the lead-off thoughts should be about high-tech confrontation uh, and, and major war or even uh, zero-summing on, on, uh, on some regional conflicts. So I'm very happy to talk about the regional problems uh, in the Q&A. Uh, interdependence, uh, the day-by-day -day activities between the U.S. and China will probably uh, be things where we count our change and they count their change, uh, but we still make deals. Uh, so when we wake up in the morning, we will open our China eye first, and we're not likely to think, oh, thank God, China is still there. <laughs> you know? Though we'd be worried if it weren't. You know? uh, and this is not unusual. Uh, the economic historian Charles Kendallberger had some wonderful observations about the relationship between uh, the Netherlands and England during the very brief period in the 18th century when the Netherlands was a serious competitor. And Kendallberger points out that in this 20, 30 year period, all the negative words about the Dutch originated. Dutch courage, which is Jim, incidentally. Uh, Dutch uncles. Dutch treat. All of these expressions originated from this, this period. You know, so I don't know what the Chinese equivalents of these things will be. But you know, I think you can already see in, in uh, media attitudes, but also expert attitudes, uh, a sense of, of, of unease about relative gain of the other side. And I think that's what Dutch uncle and Dutch treat uh, expressed in, in language. Uh, so that relationship of, of not hostility, not friendship, which is, I think will be the likely pattern in the future, uh, is something that will be central to the world because we'll have, together we have one-third of the world's uh, productivity, uh, about one-third of the world's population, 
So, you know, we, the two countries together will be the primary nodes of the world political economy and therefore the primary nodes of world attention. But let's get to the global context. Because the global context really is what makes, in my opinion, a Cold War impossible in the future. The extent of interdependence, on the one hand, increases the vulnerability of every country to other countries. It increases that sense of exposure. Now, the exposure is to opportunities as well as to, to uh, threats. But exposure to threats is a more vivid psychological problem than exposure to opportunities. So uh, that sense of, 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 uh, of no more horizons. You know, if you think of a horizon as, as a natural limit of what you, what you can see and what can affect you, where are the horizons in today's world? Where, where, the, where is the horizon that keeps Ebola from being a Texas problem? You know, or a Dallas problem, to be precise. That's from a Fort Worther, of course. Uh, where, you know, there's, there's almost nothing that, that you can say it's not worth knowing about. What, so what do we determine? We, we determine what we see of all this world and what we read on the internet and Wikipedia and whatever, depending on our, our economy of attention. So our interests create a world for ourselves that's a smaller subset of this. But the opportunities and that exposure and the possibility of being blindsided by something you'd never thought of, that's expanded not just for us as individuals, but for us as members of political communities and political communities all over. But that interdependence is also creating alt- uh, alternatives, it no longer do things depend on established trains of, of relationships as much as they did in the past. In the colonial era, the cl- colonies dealt with the mother country, and the mother country uh, could justify that type of exclusive relationship, say France and Vietnam. They could justify that exclusive relationship because otherwise, where would France get its rice? You know, otherwise, there, you know, there wouldn't be the type of flexible world market that there is in today's world. So you had these hub-and-spoke relationships that became uh, weaker but still significant in the Cold War era. That hub-and-spoke situation has disappeared. Just last year, the amount of South-South trade, uh, the amount of trade of the South uh, surpassed trade of northern countries. Uh, The growth of of trade within the South is increasing enormously. Uh, the uh, whole concepts of developed and underdeveloped countries are changing. The re- relationship of power is changing. Technological power, the power of the developed world is still a, extremely significant. It's something that developing countries are not likely to catch up with. Uh, but there is demographic power now. There is as the life chances and productivity of China, India, Indonesia, Vietnam, Malaysia, of all these countries goes up, as their productivity goes up, then their population differences matter. That's what's happening with the growth of China. China's economy is reaching our size not because uh, uh, everybody in China is as productive as an American, but there's four times as many. So one-fourth the productivity per capita produces the same aggregate productivity. But it also, it doesn't produce the same kind of power. It doesn't produce the same type of capability 
as, as technological power. If you have four times the people, then those distributive pressures on your budget will be greater than a, a country that has a, a, a smaller population and yet the same GDP. Uh, think about it as if you have a family of 12 that has $10,000, uh, and a family of four that has $10,000, the family of four has more discretionary income. Uh, and the family of, it even affects soft power. If you saw a family of 12 in a minibus going by, even if the minibus cost a lot of money, and then you saw a family of four in a nice sports car, same price going by, you'd say, I want that sports car. You, know, you don't want to be like China with 1.4 billion people. You know, you want to be like the United States, you know, and have more alternatives and be flashier. Uh, and so, you know, that appeal of soft power uh, is something that, that is related to wealth rather than, than aggregates. Uh, then you have, uh, so, so if you look at Brazil's trading pattern, for instance, Brazil's major trading partner now is China. Uh, but it's, if you look at its major five trading partners, they're each on a different continent. Argentina is the only South American country in the group. Then you have the United States, you have Germany, uh, you have South Korea. Well, actually, there's two in Asia, South Korea and China. Uh, so if Brazil decides to sell lots of soybeans to China, uh, is it establishing a new hub in spoke? Is this Chinese neocolonialism in Brazil? And I would say no, and the evidence is that when India offered a better contract for those soybeans, Brazil switched to selling them to India. So you're dealing with global markets, and global markets gives you alternatives, and that gives not only uh, the big country alternative. We think of, of discretion related to power. Discretion is also related to the available alternatives, and that the whole context of global alternatives has changed. Uh, so there's no real camp discipline anymore like there were in the good old days. Uh, if you look at uh, uh, the uh, Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, uh, it, there you have a good example of the United States trying to discourage allies from joining the AIIB, a Chinese initiative, and failing. And with you know, the, uh, with the United Kingdom, you know, leading the, the, the retreat, uh, you know, leading the, the, the sellout to, to China, much to U.S. disgust. And, uh, and is this a Chinese victory? I'd say it's an American diplomatic defeat, but it's, a, but it's not necessarily a Chinese victory because China's under... The, the aid China distributes through AIIB will be under restrictions of a multilateral economic lending or, organization that it's set up, and the other members, will, founding members especially, will have uh, uh, you know, participation in the rules and implementation of, of their grants. But it is a loss to the United States because we self-limited. You know, we're left there with, with Japan giving us a courtesy three months, and us by ourselves as not members of the organization, and not only looking foolish, but be kind of we we will we will be foolish until we join, because there's no reason not to, and it's a useful organization, and it's not simply something controlled by China. And when the president of Iran 
said recently that he is not, you know, he didn't make a deal with the U.S. Congress. He made a deal with the other countries that participated, with all the countries that participated uh, in the discussions. I think he is also operating in this, this world of many alternatives. And it's quite possible that the U.S. could end up with a self-limited Iran policy if we uh, uh, maintain a policy that the other countries don't feel is necessary and don't feel is in their interest. And you have abandonment of coalitions from that. That is much, think, back in the good old days, if you really like power, uh, you, could, you had more sanctions available. You know, there were less opportunity. there were fewer alternatives for the others and you had more sanctions. You, people were kind of cornered on their spoke. The hub could determine which way the wheel moved. It's a different world now. And it's, it's not a totally different world, but I, I, what I'm trying to point out is something that has changed gradually, but something that's likely to continue changing in this direction and something that we need to think about. Okay, so what are the effects of these global context changes? Well, I'd say you have basically a noisy but relatively stable disorder. Uh, I'm not trying to picture the perfect world because remember all that vulnerability, all the, all the nationalism, uh, that feeling of national insecurity expressing itself or national pride and determination expressing <laughs> itself uh, in interaction with the vulnerability that's felt. Uh, nationalism just doesn't grow up, you know. Robinson Crusoe wasn't nationalist. He didn't have to be, okay? But if you're dealing with neighbors, you define yourself against those neighbors. And those neighbors, as you get more neighbors and as they get, the relationship gets more intense, that creates problems for your own identity. And those problems can go in many different directions. Okay, so you have this noisy but relatively stable disorder with uh, the, uh, with growing nationalism, growing vividness of concerns, uh, but still relatively stable, not the chaos that realist international relations theories would imagine because of all those interconnections that are holding things, keeping things from, from uh, uh, providing a, a kind of soft network of, of expectations and constraints on action, not Sanctions and rewards that are, that are administered by a policeman, but sanctions and rewards because if we go this way, then we'll be poorer than if we go that way and we'll have more trouble, et cetera, et cetera. So the alternatives get defined, uh, get structured by the, the reality that occurs. Uh, and increasing difficulties in domestic governance. I think this is true for China, but I think it's true for us. I think it's true for practically every country. You have a this greater vividness of global concerns and the greater amount of social connectivity within countries uh, is going to make it harder for governments to, to govern, make it harder for governments, uh, especially uh, governments like China and Vietnam, which uh, think that they can control the information by controlling the official media. But it, not, not an easy situation for any place. It, American politics is, is, is very different in content, but no different as far as difficulties of, of governance goes. And as a result, I think there'll be many failed governments. There'll be many governments in trouble, removed, and whatever. There'll be some failed states, 
But I don't think there'll be much system rearrangement. I, 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 it's hard to imagine a Genghis Khan or uh, you know, even a Hitler uh, even uh, being able to make much traction in a world that is so thick with interconnections. Uh, and uh, as you see with Saddam Hussein in Iraq and, and Kuwait, uh, the uh, uh, global concerns about uh, aggression in small places uh, become uh, effective controls. But what do they control for? They control to retain a status quo of national interrelationships. They don't usually control to create a whole new Middle East or whatever. Uh, so I call this beyond hegemony because you have uh, in two parts. One, you do have a decline in relative power of the United States as, as the hegemon of the, of the post-Cold War era. But more than this, each state has more to lose in exclusive camping, exclusive alliance relationships with some other pole, including the major poles, but also including Vietnam, Malaysia, uh, South Africa, or whatever. So it's a situation where, uh, to the extent that the U.S. And, and China are competitive, that is, they each want to, to have more and relatively more influence, it'll be more an influence of persuasion than an influence of compulsion or domination. Rather than you are with me rather than with them, it'll be like you, we're, we're in this together. Uh, I, our, my leadership is persuasive. I, you want to, to do what I'm suggesting because that fits your understanding of your interest. So global leadership becomes what I call multinodal. The world is multinodal, not multipolar. If you think of poles as, as that country, unipolar or bipolar or multipolar, is the number of countries who control the world's affairs. There is no number of countries that controls the world's affairs. What you have is a much more complex structure, a matrix of, of countries, uh, in a located matrix of countries, different types of capabilities located uh, uh, in... In, in regions uh, and having uh, primary nodes, U.S. and China, I think of as primary nodes, secondary nodes, uh, Germany, uh, Japan, uh, and others, tertiary nodes. Now, if you want to get down to Cambodia, you know, there's lots of different types of relationships that, Cam <coughs> that Cambodia looks out at uh, that are each of them an asymmetric relationship, and none of them simply are deducible from a Cold War camp relationship. So a multinodal pattern, I think, provides a kind of richness that fits uh, the situation, whereas multipolar uh, makes a presumption about control that no longer is valid. So what are the consequences for strategy? I'd say the first consequence is that there is no longer, and this is a consequence primarily for the United States, that there's no longer absolute invulnerability. The illusion of absolute invulnerability arose in the post-Cold War era with the collapse of the Soviet Union. 
Hey, we were conscious of a vulnerability from the 1960s to the fall of the Soviet Union, and we still have the problem of the, the messiness of remaining nuclear weapons. Uh, but in the post-Cold War era, uh, we came to think of ourselves and the rest of the world thought of, our, thought of us as a superpower, unipolar superpower that could do what it wanted to, wherever it wanted to, without danger. This concept of security is invulnerability. And, hey, which of us would not prefer to be invulnerable? You know, the whole market for superhero comic books would disappear. You know, uh, it's, of course, to have a sense of security that depends only on yourself, you know, and the relative, <laughs> and the the depth of not being you that the others have, you know. Uh, that's very nice, but that is declining. Uh, I'd say, first of all, in the Western Pacific, with the rise of China's capabilities in, in its near waters, uh, and air, and space in that area, as far as uh, U.S. activities around Taiwan, even in, around uh, on the what's called the First Island Chain. Uh, so this is uh, a situation where, uh, which has led the uh, PACOM, uh, the Navy and Air Force, to come up with the notion of, of air-sea battle, uh, which and solves the problem of, of threatened invulnerability by, by creating it at a new level, including uh, in-depth attacks on uh, what the, the Chinese facilities that would make our forces vulnerable in the area. Well, these facilities happen to be located well within mainland China, and they might object to that, you know, and, and they might consider this grounds for further conflict. Uh, thermonuclear war, you know, if, if it's a slow day. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you think about it, air-sea battle solves the problem of of Secure, you know, reestablishing invulnerability by expanding the scope of the conflict to a global scope in which the United States is the global leader, but still a vulnerable global leader. And so that concept is, seems to be easing out now. Uh, but that, we should think about it in different terms. In Western Pacific, what we do have, what we have now, and what we, is fairly easily preserved is mutual deniability. Just because we can't do what we want to do in the Taiwan Straits without interference and without, without vulnerability, uh, if, if it's against China's interest, China can't do in the Taiwan Straits whatever it wants to do or can't do between it and Japan whatever it wants to do uh, without vulnerability. And as long as you have mutually de- mutual deniability in the area, then you have essentially a stalemate situation. And a stalemate situation is the fertile ground for negotiation. Then you negotiate your rules of, of engagement. You negotiate your codes of conduct. You negotiate what your, what your mutual limits are to change a potentially time-losing, lose-lose uh, confrontation into something that's more manageable. Uh, and then the same is true, at a, at also located but also broader than this, with space weaponization, and cyber war. Uh, Can we really establish invulnerability in space weaponization and cyber war? I don't think so. 
Uh, and I don't think China can either. Uh, so then you have situations that need to be uh, where countries need to sit down and figure out how to control their mutual exposure to loss. Uh, and then in the case of space and cyber, this is not just a question of mutual reassurance, but also global governance. It becomes more like the nonproliferation aspects of, of nuclear negotiations. So how do, you, how do China and the United States take the lead in controlling a mutual exposure to lose-lose situations uh, and turning that into a global reduction in exposure to lose-lose situations, especially cyber, since the entering into cyber war is easier. Uh, so that, that problem of no absolute invulnerability, I think, is number one on the strategic consequences of a post-hegemonic world. The second invulnerability, the second uh, uh, strategic consequence I've already mentioned, that is that attempts at containment are essentially self-containment. If we apply sanctions, or if China applies sanctions, if China tells Vietnam, you can't deal with the U.S., what China will find is that they have thereby become the greater threat to Vietnam. And Vietnam will do many, many things to reduce their sense of vulnerability to China, possibly including improving relations with the U.S., despite China's threats. Uh, it would be very difficult for, for uh, China to, to be able to contain, to make Vietnam part of its little alliance system if Vietnam didn't want to be there. And why would Vietnam want to be there? It balances its huge dependence on uh, its huge negative balance of trade with China by its positive balance of trade with the U.S. If it had to cut off the U.S. trade, it wouldn't be able to pay for the goods it gets from China. So you have a situation where, where uh, to the extent that a big country says to smaller countries, you're on our side or you're against us, for most of the smaller countries, most of the time, they will probably not pick being on your side. Uh, and the AIIB is a good example of that. That if, if alternatives exist, it, we, you, we no longer have our allies cornered. Soviet Union, is, China doesn't have its allies cornered the way the Soviet Union did in the Warsaw Pact. If you don't have them cornered, then you don't have much control over their behavior. If you don't have control, then your attempts to cotter them will produce evasive behavior. I'm not saying that they'll say, you know, that, they, uh, that Vietnam would say, go to hell, China. You know, hell's, China's very close to Vietnam. That make, hell, that make the border of Vietnam very warm. Uh, so, uh, uh, but doing various types of evasive behavior definitely open to China. Uh, open to, to any small country. So no camp discipline. Then what happens to alliances? Well, China doesn't have an alliance structure outside North Korea and, and Russia, but those are not really seriously uh, alliance structures. Uh, we do, but those alliance structures have tended to become heritage structures of alignments rather than alliances against an enemy. And if we try to present them, try to redefine them, or re, uh, 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 to build the walls around those alliances, we'd discover some limitations to those alliances. Uh, then the last thing 
of, of for strategic considerations is the need for U.S.-China cooperation. Uh, it's possible to imagine U.S.-China hostile, uh, you know, in a zero-sum relationship, and the rest of the world dealing more with itself. You know, South Korea dealing with uh, South Viet, South Africa dealing more with Brazil, because it doesn't want to deal through the volatile top countries, and this is you know this is happening anyway. Uh, more regionalization to avoid uh, tensions at the global level. This could happen. But the thing is, there are many issues that require cooperation and leadership at the top of the world system. And if U.S. and China were zero-summing and the rest of the world were going around, uh, that would be different from the Cold War situation. But we'd still be left with a situation where world issues, global warming, infinite number of other smaller issues uh, could not be dealt with in a coordinated fashion. So global cooperation and global leadership will be important. I particularly like the meeting between Obama and, and Xi Jinping on climate concerns. You know, that is the type of thing that for many areas of world interest, and not just big areas like that, but areas of cooperation such as disaster relief in Nepal, uh, areas, uh, you know, both crisis-oriented uh, cooperation and other forms of cooperation, things that are clearly to common interest. U.S.-China cooperation uh, should be seen as necessary, and it shouldn't be seen as something uh, where we zero-sum our, co our, our contributions, but both should be involved. Uh, these, I think, could develop capacities for mutual prestige like Soyuz has been. Uh, they could be, uh, disaster relief would be helpful. Space exploration could be a, a much more joint than it is. Uh, and in general, let me conclude by saying that China is a challenge, but it's not the challenger to an otherwise unproblematic American hegemony. China's a challenge because it's part of a world change, a global change, in which it happens to be the most prominent part. Fighting the last Cold War is a mistake, not because China is our friend, but because the context and structure of global power has changed. And in my opinion, it's changed for the better. So thanks, and I look forward to your questions. Okay, so the, the, the three sounds good. Let me, let me get up a page to take notes on that. Uh, I think I'm the victim of cyber war. The last, <laughs> last two days... My word program has been crashing every three minutes, it seems. So, uh, okay, yes. Yes, uh, uh, you mentioned a little bit the political dynamics at the beginning of your talk, but, uh, but first of all, I'm going to say thank you very much for the presentation. It was, it was uh, wonderful in terms of content and delivered in a very accessible way, so thank you. Oh, thank much. you. Uh, I had a question about the, uh, the, the political relationship of, of, of this rivalry in the 21st century. I, I like to think of the, 20, of, the, of the Cold War in part 
uh, as competition, at least from a social scientific standpoint, between a, a, a state-directed economy and, and a market economy. Now we have a competition between really two capitalisms, and but, but, but whereby one is authoritarian and the other is more liberal democratic. And I'm thinking about the, how each of these powers may appeal to parts of the developing world as, as models. And this is my question to you. It's, it seems to me, and I'm wondering what you think, uh, that in fact uh, China might be, the, in, for, for many countries, more attractive because of the efficiency of an authoritarian capitalism and also the fact that such a system is much less likely to criticize um, the, 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 the receiving government and, and the receiving culture, so on and so forth. So I'm wondering if, in the, if, if you might think that in the 21st century, at least with regard to the competition between China and the USA in, in, in influencing the developing world, that China might well be uh, a better position for both economic and, and political reasons. Oh, the good question. Uh, but let's, let's. Kate has to leave, so maybe. Oh, yes, oh, sorry, yeah, that's right. I actually have a question that puts you in the shoes of a policymaker today. And looking at U.S. economic policy towards China recently, especially with the, the, the big sort of debacle of the AIG and so forth, I wonder to some extent are we seeing China as a threat, but this is a threat of our own making. And if you look at the past five years, we failed to pass IMF reforms, which was a key determining factor for China creating the new development bank, the AIG. Um, We've snubbed the nose of our allies who then were driven into the arms of the AIG, et cetera. Is there any way to put this whole of government policy failure genie back into the bottle and reboot in such a way that we can step back from policies of the last few years, which have really created rivalry where rivalry need not exist? Very good. And I know you know more about these issues than I do, too. <laughs> so, uh, and but I, I agree. And, and, you know, I would put... You know, as uh, using my labels, I'd call that self-containment policies. You know, policies that are based on an existing superiority or existing control of institutions, uh, but it, it, one that that presumes that there won't be alternatives to those institutions or to those arrangements. And uh, and AIIB shows that it's possible, and not just possible as as a kind of giant chess game between U.S. And, and, and China, but China doing something very shrewd, coming up with an institution that could be convincing to U.K. and, and Australia and South Korea. And if you think about it, they're not doing this because, oh, you know, China's a big country and, and we've got to keep them happy. You know, they're doing it because this is a, this is a good thing for us. And we... I don't think there's enough attention paid in U.S. policy to uh, that question of whether the things we're proposing are good things for the people we're proposing them for. Uh, and, we, you know, sanctions are cheap. Sanctions look like easy ways to solve problems. And, uh, and sanctions are probably the most uh, dramatic, self-containing uh, policy tool. Uh, I wouldn't give them up completely, you know. S spare the world and spoil the child, you know. But uh, uh, it's still something that we tend to we tend to go to to solve the problem in our face. We don't tend to look at uh, take take seriously the interest of parties we're dealing with. So, good question. Yes. Thanks for the presentation. Um, Vietnam has recently uh, reiterated its, its 
giving access to Cameron Bay, you know, Russians access to Cameron Bay and everything like right. that. In the context of your theory, yep. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why Kentucky would probably do a little work with Russia and not the United States, but some see this kind of choice between the U.S. and Russia by Vietnam. And I wonder if your theory doesn't say that, no, it's a desire by Vietnam to have that node in the region. Oh, yeah. Because the U.S. is already there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Vietnam. Uh, oh, now I'm taking questions as they come. Okay, after I answer your question, I'm going to go back to your question. Because I, hey, I've lost discipline, you know. Uh, the uh, uh, Vietnam wants to have as much open as possible. The situation of small countries in general is, uh, I mean, the, the, the strategy that uh, really uh, is an, the default strategy for small countries is to have as many relationships as possible to buffer their relationships with the ones they're most exposed to. If Vietnam increases its relation with the with with ASEAN, joining ASEAN really changed Vietnam's self identity as a member of a region. Never had been a member of a Southeast Asian region before. Been part of French Indochina and the leading part, leading three parts Indochina. Uh, but uh, so to have better to retain their their relationships with Russia. Russia is the primary investor in their offshore oil since 1990. Uh, to retain their connections. <laughs> Vietnamese run a good deal of the black market activities in Russia still, and they're also quite involved in Eastern Europe. Uh, so my best friends used to sell Levi's in Moscow. Uh, and uh, uh, so you have those types of relationships. As far as the security relationship goes, what Vietnam uh, has proclaimed as its policy in the mid-90s was that Cameron uh, Bay would be open uh, to all countries, and they, they wouldn't be military. They go toward, uh, what I think you will see, especially in Vietnam-U.S. relations, is every time there's a Vietnam-U.S. initiative, there will be a balancing China initiative, like the current visit to Beijing. Uh, but uh, Vietnam wants to develop every relationship as far as it can be developed. Uh, but not, not as a containment of China. That's too vulnerable. They did that with the Soviet Union from 79 to, to, uh, to 91. And it self-isolated Vietnam and made them vulnerable to Gorbachev's 1986 turn toward China. Oh, no, that's right. Uh, economic model question. It's a very good question. And it's, but it's, it, it's, it's interestingly complex because... Has China succeeded as a different model, or has China succeeded as, you know, parts, as a sort of syncretic model of market forces and uh, still maintaining central control over the highlights of the, you know, the, the high ground of the economy? And how has that changed over the last 35 years? Uh, so I think they're, judging from, from people that I've met, but primarily met in China, talking about these questions. Uh, and Josh would know more, much, much more about this from, say, an African perspective on, on uh, development alternatives. Uh, China, the fact that China's been effective in getting out of a, a situation of stagnant growth and isolation into this rapid growth and maintaining control over the rapid growth is very impressive to other developing countries. But if you ask them 
who they would like to be like, you know, what their, fi their future ideal would be as far as socioeconomic conditions, not, not necessarily every aspect of culture. It'd be U.S. or other developed countries. So China is, is, is not so much an ideal, a model in the ideal sense as it is a model in a more practical sense of how to get there. And a lot of China's development aid, a lot of its educational initiatives, bringing uh, people from developing countries into China for education, those are directed in that uh, more practical sense of, of well, get moving. Uh, and not just get moving in a state-owned enterprise uh, situation, but get, get your government more efficient, uh, get your... your uh, <coughs> No, get in tune with global economy and development economy type of concerns. And get in tune with China. You know, they, they like having people there you know, to be uh, sort of the Chinese Fulbright program. Uh, yes. Thank you for your presentation. Uh -huh. So insightful. Uh, can you please discuss the effect of China moving into building bases in the Sure. Uh, I think since I've done a lot of work on China and Vietnam and have been visiting there uh, for the last century, uh, it's been very interesting to see the developments in South China Sea. Uh, one thing to be remembered is that the islands, uh, let's, let's, let me concentrate on the Spratly Islands rather than Paracels. Paracels are bilateral dispute between China and Vietnam. Spratlys are the five and a half country dispute, half because Taiwan's a claim on the China card, uh, and also the best established claim. Uh, uh, they are miserable, worthless islands where you wouldn't want to spend more than any more than a day on a sunny day at, at low tide. Uh, if you took all the paper that's been written about the Spratleys and spread it on the Spratleys, then all, most of it would get wet because you only have five square kilometers of dry land. Uh, and that's the total. You have horrible hydrology. These islands, they didn't discover, they, they first mapped more or less by the British in 1840. They, uh, they didn't discover a, a passage through the islands until the 1920, a, a horizontal passage, vertical passage, took a few more years. They shift. They're called the dangerous ground on maritime charts. Uh, no uh, no sh shipping goes close to those islands. There's the Bermuda Triangle of the South China Sea. Traditional shipping went either along the Philippine coast, a little bit, not that much, but some of it to the uh, Philippines and Indonesia, and the main shipping went along the Vietnamese coast. They didn't go through the middle. The reason the British were the ones, the reason we call them the Spratly Islands, uh, is because the British had blue water ships, they had steamships, uh, they wanted to take, you know, they looked at the map, they wanted to take more direct routes, and the, after they ran into the Spratlys a few times, they figured out they better know where they are. Uh, so, uh, all this is to establish the reason why there's conflicting claims, because nobody wanted them until the idea of oil came up. They're conflicting claims. They're anecdotal claims. They're not administrative claims. There's no native population. There's no water. Uh, these are islands are, are, uh, are just 
happened to be located in the middle of the South China Sea, and they happened to have ambiguous claims from all these parties. The Japanese developed a guano station there in the 30s. You know, that's, that's the level of, of uh, high economic achievement of the area. Uh, so you have conflicting claims, on very shallow conflicting claims. It's not that, the, that the, you have, and it's not like uh, Sudetenland claims or uh, uh, Alsace-Lorraine claims or something like that, you know, uh, or uh, 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 Northeast Thailand-Laos or something like, you know, clay, they're, they're not heartland claims, they're not population claims, they're claims that are made important because of location and the attribution of resources. Uh, China is doing the same thing in those islands that everybody else is doing. There are other, uh, the other countries have uh, runways. Taiwan's expanding the runway that they have on the largest of the islands, Taiping Island. Taiwan's maintained control of Taiping Island since the late 50s, which means that it has the longest term established uh, claim to the islands, uh, which creates an interesting situation with China. Uh, and uh, so what you have here is a mess. And the mess is preserved because international law says that if somebody does something and nobody objects, then they must be doing it on their territory. So if China builds a runway and nobody is bothered by that, uh, nobody objects, then they must be doing something on their own territory. That would be establishing, if, if, if there were no critique of that, uh, if there was no comment on that, it could be later evidence of, of uh, sovereign control. Though actually, once the, the claims are there, further activity doesn't improve your claims. As far as the military utility of a runway that far off, uh, it's pretty limited. Uh, it, might be li more, it might be useful for some types of surveillance types of things, but they don't have, they won't be able to. Well, I'm sure there's military people here who could make uh, more informed comments, but I don't think it's some place that anybody would think would be able to uh, hold off, you know, to, to be a, a key point in a hostile relationship between China and Southeast Asia. I'm sorry, I give you too long a forward to a short answer that's inadequate for your question. Uh, but the best I can do area which I I hate the Spratly Islands. I I feel like those recruits that get stuck there, you know, that those poor old Filipinos that are in that rusted hulk on the island they claim, you know, and have to live off the barnacles they can catch. You know, they, here I am, I'd much rather deal with more important issues than the Spratly Islands. But everybody wants to know about the Spratly Islands because it's, you know, the area of conflict. And it's, a, it's a material symbol of the feeling of threat that, that neighbors have about China and a symbol of the ambiguity of China's future relationships as a big power in the neighborhood uh, rather than, than something that's intrinsically as significant as people, as people assume. Well, uh, 
there's, needless to say, there's difference of opinion, if not in the leadership, at least among the people I talk to, uh, you know, the advisorship, you might say. Uh, and there are people in the advisorship, I'm thinking especially of Yen Shui-tong at, uh, at Tsinghua University, uh, who you would like to see China sort of mirror image the U.S. Uh, and uh, develop an alliance system and prepare for rivalry and competition with the U.S. because he thinks it's inevitable. So there are people uh, like that in China. There are military sorts that you know, talk even more uh, militarily about the future. Uh, the statements by Xi Jinping, uh, if you'll permit me to bracket China-Japan relations. Okay, that's a stinky area. But uh, other than that, Xi Jinping's general policies, uh, international policies, have been pretty reasonable. Uh, they've been where they've been dramatic. It's things like the one belt, one road, the new proposals for developing Central Asia to Europe ties and and around Southeast Asia, past India, uh, to uh, Africa. East Africa and, and Middle East, you know, so these, merit, these new Silk Roads, uh, I think they're, they're designed to be uh, uh, mutually beneficial to all the parties involved. They've attracted positive response, et cetera. Uh, on bilateral issues like Spratly Islands, uh, the signals are mixed. You have the movement of the oil rig. <coughs> Uh, last May, a year ago, then the uh, riots in Vietnam and very serious discussions of you know what to do about relations with China in the Politburo in Vietnam, and then the with- early withdrawal of the RIG. Uh, so uh, there's been both uh, some policy initiatives that are uh, uh, assertive. They're not expansionist to the system. There's not been a policy initiative that's not based on a claim that already existed. So there's not expansionist to the system of new claims, but new assertiveness about those claims has been a problem. Uh, and I don't see China's right now at a sort of back-off phase from both the Japan assertiveness and the, the Southeast Asia assertiveness. I hope that continues. I don't see I don't see assertiveness as the new Xi Jinping trend. Yeah. Yeah, two, two short questions. One is what do you foresee in terms of uh, you do you foresee that China will ever take a or, or will take a stronger role at some point with North Korea over their nuclear program one. Secondly, what are your thoughts uh, about the TPPP? Uh, the uh, North Korea question is a real bear for China because it's the nuclear question is the question that concerns us most. But the biggest question in North Korea is uh, reunification. And that question is going to be there forever. Uh, so even if the nuclear question gets handled, uh, North Korea will remain a vortex of of multilateral jostling and problems for the foreseeable future because the differences between North and South Korea are too great for South Korea to overcome on its own. South Korea is 
is not in the nice situation Germany was in of, of, of uh, brand-specific superiority in, in, in its exports. It, uh, it could lose its advantage. If the, imagine South Korea is in an economic race with competitors uh, who can do pretty much what it can do, Taiwan, Japan, China. If you put a 15-pound load of a restoration of North, Viet, uh, North Korea on the, Viet, on the uh, South Korean horse, and it starts to regularly lose those races, then it could get into serious economic trouble. You know, the, the tailspin from that could be serious. So uh, it's, not, it's not just China that's concerned about uh, that type of regime collapse, but China is more concerned about it than we are. On the nuclear issue, uh, my impression is the nuclear issue, um, that North Korea uses that to get American attention, uh, and it doesn't, you know, as long as it feels fundamentally insecure with its relationship with the United States, then why would it give up its one way of getting American attention? Uh, there have been little windows of responsiveness from North Korea that we haven't responded to. Uh, and, uh, and North Korea could look at what happened to Russia in the 1990s to see that just being being nice to the United States and, and losing uh, competitive power just means the U.S. will ignore you or roll over you in the case of NATO expansion. So uh, it's really hard to, to, to advise North Korea to give up nuclear weapons. And I think the Chinese find it hard to advise that, even though obviously they're the easiest target to hit. Ah, maybe South Korea too. Oh, Trans-Pacific Partnership. I think uh, China, the leadership in China has said that basically it's, it would be happy with TPP. Uh, but, you know, the restriction on TPP, not only, I mean, other than the domestic problems in U.S. of TPP, the, the restriction is market economy designation. That keeps Vietnam out as well as China. Uh, and uh, given the sort of latent China containment strategy of TPP, uh, people sometimes talk about how can we redefine Vietnam to be less like China so that Vietnam can get in, you know. Uh, but I say, can't, you know. Hey, we could, we could define Vietnamese catfish as not catfish, which we did. Uh, but uh, to define Vietnamese economy as not a party state system like China's would be a, quite a trick. Yeah. One more. Oh, one more question. This is the last, final, best question. No pressure. No pressure. The Confucius Institute. Yes. What is your impression uh, of it? Do you have it, a relationship with it at your school? Uh huh. As near as I know, <clears throat> a dialogue was begun between UT and the Confucius Institute. And as near as I know, at the back end of it, there's no ongoing relationship. Uh huh. Uh, University of Virginia does not have a Confucius Institute relationship. Uh, it's not a matter of principle, but it just shows how slow universities can be. Now, not here, but UVA, everything has to you go. First of all, you go to Thomas Jefferson, and you find out if Thomas Jefferson had a Confucius Institute and what he said about Confucius. You know, and then, then 
with the rest, you know, the, the remaining five minutes of the meeting, you go on to whatever the contemporary issue is. Uh, so we don't have a Confucius Institute. Yep. I, I think. Uh, so uh, what do I think about them? I think that they're 90% harmless and uh, basically okay. They provide resources in an area where universities and surrounding communities are short on resources uh, for language development. Uh, I think that's their basic purpose. The, the, the disputes are basically on questions of, of, uh, of what can be taught or said in a Confucius Institute that could be said here or Japan or Thailand or wherever, but not in China. You know, Falun Gong, uh, Tibet, things like that. Uh, well, the business of Confucius Institutes isn't to uh, isn't a political mission, so they're not trying to tell the U.S. the truth about Tibet or whatever. Uh, but they also, since they're run by long-term contracts with Chinese universities, they also, you know, it, uh, they feel constricted on. Uh, what they can cover. Uh, so what do you do with them? Um, I don't think to see them as, you know, a snake's head under the tent of American freedom, I think, is a little bit strong. Uh, but to uh, not to see the problems of that type of of, of government sponsorship and therefore lingering government control is also a problem. So I wouldn't be, I'd be willing to, if the issue came up at UVA, you know, after the, the Jefferson prologue, I'd, I'd be willing to discuss it. Uh, and I think that the, you, one could control the agenda of a, of a Confucius Institute so that neither the propaganda nor the challenges would be part of the program. They're, they're very unevenly spread in the world, Most, uh, more in the U.S. than anywhere else. Well, okay. Thank you all for joining uh, us.